Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the managing director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome to this episode of Edge, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to a wonderful educator, a fine young educator, and also um, by night time or other role is an elite sports person and sportswoman. It's uh, my absolute uh, delight to welcome Kirby Short to Edge. So welcome, Kirby. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. Looking forward to it. So am I. This has been a long time in the making, but uh, ever since I've met you, there's been this, from my perspective, a great immediate connection. And uh, you have such a warmth and uh, ability to connect with people. And I think that comes from being a teacher, but uh, comes from somewhere. But tell me about your uh, early years, your growing up and about your early years of life and family, etc. Yeah, it's always interesting to reflect on those things, isn't it, when you start to think about what has been and and where we are now. But I think childhood for me, I mean, I was incredibly lucky. Uh, I have a one younger brother um, and parents who are both educators, uh, and I grew up in a family that really valued two things, physical activity and learning. And I think having those two things consistent across my childhood meant that uh, my brother and I were really fortunate to have a whole variety of experiences from <laughs> living on a school site. My dad was a boarding house master at one point there when I was really quite young. So we had a whole school to explore. That was our playground. We didn't go down to the local park. We cruised around the quadrangle and swam in a 25-metre pool for our backyard pool and used uh, students from the boarding house as lifeguards for our parties. So we were always doing something, I think, as kids, and we spent a lot of time at the beach as well so again that you know being in the surf and being outdoors and valuing time with family we were lucky that we spent a lot of time with our cousins over Christmas holidays and we have a really close tight-knit family it doesn't always equate to time spent necessarily but that kind of family where you can pick up the phone and make a call and know that if you needed something they would be there so I my childhood was, yeah, I was incredibly blessed and I don't say that lightly, but never kind of wanting for opportunity. You'd go away and play some sort of sporting carnival and get picked in a team and it'd just be, you know, taken on board and away we go. What team have you made this time? And let's go and make that happen. So um, between valuing education and, and valuing learning, whether that was formal or informal uh, and absolutely physical activity and organised sport, I think they were the two key themes for me growing up um, and very grateful to have both of those as such priorities and I suppose then that translates to the things I now value. And uh, obviously manifests in what we're going to talk about in a moment but the first time I met you we talked about values and uh, there was from my perspective and follow-up conversations 
we hold similar values and connections. So what do you value, uh, Kirby, in terms of your own life and, and your work? What are the things that resonate with you? Yeah, I think I've always valued challenge. I think there's something that that idea of being a little bit better tomorrow than you were today, I think that's something that I absolutely value. And I think things like sort of integrity and and honesty can be used a little bit flippantly, but I think I kind of settle with loyalty in the sense that, as I say, I was raised in a, a household where you look after your people um, and there is an absolute sense of loyalty for me with things that I choose to do, whether it's loyalty to an organisation or loyalty to people. That is something that I genuinely value and hold very dear and inform so many of the decisions that I make. And I think there's always been a thread of, of leadership, I think, for me in terms of the opportunity to make a contribution. I think I see that's probably part of how I see leadership is that idea that you have the capacity, and I talk to kids about it at school a lot, you don't need a badge to be a leader. Um, that idea that I think in conjunction with that notion of being a little bit better tomorrow than you are today and challenging yourself and and seeking those opportunities, I think by definition you then have the chance to make a positive contribution to other people by being a leader of self first and then of others. So I think when I look at key experiences across my life and things that have really made me feel happy and fulfilled, a lot of those things are present. You know, I feel connected to a group that I'm loyal to. I feel like I'm being challenged and improving um, and that allows me to feel like I make a contribution. So if I can do those things, no matter where I am, no matter what context I'm in, um, then I feel like I'm hopefully making a positive contribution to people around me. And I'll talk about that wonderful contribution that uh, you've made thus far and uh, more to come. So what was school like for you, the young Kirby Short? Um, was it an enjoyable experience for you? Yeah, school's an interesting one. Primary school, just went to my local primary school growing up and there's a couple of teachers I still think about. I, I used to speak at my um, high school careers evening when I'd finished and in reflecting on those sort of important people in your world, you talk about leaders that have influenced you or um, people that have had a really big impact on your life. And there's a couple of teachers that I can absolutely identify in primary school that perhaps unconsciously at the time and now very clear to me the role that they played in shaping who I am. So primary school, I thoroughly loved. I, again, loved learning, loved the opportunity to, to be in a classroom or be outside and and try all of the things um, and there were always there was sport and music and all of the things that featured at that time and then my transition to high school probably wasn't as smooth I don't remember struggling to kind of ensconce myself in primary school but the transition into high school part of that was my mum taught at the school that I went to um, and I think that for me there was part of this idea that uh, there was a, this unwritten expectation that I thought other people had of me that turns out it was probably just an expectation that I had of myself. And mm. I found my first year, probably first 18 months of high school, particularly challenging. I think I struggled to differentiate between being the daughter of a staff member as opposed to being my own. So by the second half of grade nine, I absolutely loved it um, and thrived from that point onwards. But I think it was a bit of a bumpy road initially for me starting out at high school. I mean, I, I now sit in a place of knowing where lots of kids really struggle to go from primary school to high school. I think there are a few more layers to it for me. But yeah, I, I certainly would say that I was a lover of school um, and I was really 
really fortunate that both of the schools that I attended just gave us such immense opportunity to explore things and work out who we were and there was enough opportunity for you to sample a whole variety of things to determine where your fit was and for me that was part of struggling initially and then finding my people and finding some activities that gave me that sense of belonging and unsurprisingly then you know your results improve and your engagement is better and you're a genuinely happy human that wants to get up and go to school every day so largely loved school and there was just a little bit of a bump in the road there in the middle um, but it certainly righted itself eventually. So being the uh, daughter and the, the sibling of quite well-known educators in uh, in Queensland, in Brisbane, your dad, uh, obviously, um, headmaster of Brisbane Boys Grammar School, eventually, and your mum, uh, obviously, very well-known as well. So you've now forged your own career as an educator, but not in uh, the independent sector. And you, your own identity, which you mentioned before, forming who you are and obviously loyal to your family and family's critical and the values that have formed you. When did you wake up one morning or did you wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be an educator and I'm going to da-da-da-da? Or did it happen like that or was it just natural? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. I, I was determined not to be, Stephen, to be honest. My parents are two of my favourite people in the world and I have such respect for them as humans and as professionals and they role modelled for both myself and my brother nothing but positivity about the the opportunity that they had to educate young people and to lead their peers and their colleagues um, and to be fair systemically as well. But I think, again, back to that, I don't want to do the thing that people will think I'm not making a decision about, that I'm just following that that cliche, which I find revolting about, you know, just following in the footsteps of your parents. Because for me, I'm a pretty independent human. So the idea that people would think I wasn't making a decision and I was just doing what everyone else was doing, I was mortified by. So I, in finishing up at high school and I I got good academic results and I had options, I was sort of tossing up or maybe physio, you know, I love sport and I like the idea of working with athletes and physiotherapy would be a really wonderful thing to do. So that was sort of on the QTAC form. And and then I thought, oh, well, human movements degree, University of Queensland were particularly reputable. Ironically, in the back of my mind, and perhaps not so unconscious, was the fact that the phys ed component of that degree they had some of the leading educators and lecturers and tutors in their organisation at that time. So the pragmatic part of me went, well, if I don't get into physio, because that was at the time it was sort of really highly sought after, I wasn't really sure what my results would be. And I sort of hedged my bets and went, well, pragmatically, I won't waste time if I do want to do physio. Doing human movements would make sense because I could, you know, do the first couple years of exercise science and then finish that degree and then do a master's of physio and and crack on in that way so I was being quite pragmatic about the choice that I made about tertiary study knowing that the other option within that human movements degree was actually majoring in education and so I decided that because I wasn't truly decided in my gut about which path I wanted to follow from a tertiary perspective human movements at UQ made the most sense to me. It literally gave me two years in that degree before I had to make a choice about which major I wanted to do. And so I sort of went down that road and it was, it 
it wasn't quite a wake up in the middle of the night and have an epiphany situation, but it was about halfway through second year and we started to dabble in some of the education-based subjects. To that point, we'd done a lot of science and applied science and biomechanics and physiology and all of the things that, to be honest, I didn't actually love that much at school. And then all of a sudden we were doing some education-based subjects and I did have this realisation about halfway through that second year of the degree, just before I had to make a call about whether third and fourth year would be X fees or education. I thought, oh, mate, you are kidding yourself if you think you don't love this. Um, and <laughs> turns out that the gene pool is quite strong. Um, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have chosen science as my second teaching area. I probably would have, ironically, um, the blood does run deep and the sociology history part probably appealed to me more, which is reflected in mum and dad's interests, actually. But I was doing human movements I made a choice then that actually I I loved the idea of being an educator and it didn't bother me what mum and dad did. It's what I wanted to do. So in second year of that degree, I decided that third and fourth year I would major in education. However, made as you alluded to, that really deliberate decision, I did my final prac in fourth year at Corinda State High School actually and deliberately chose to have that practicum in an education Queensland school because I thought, well, for me, that forging of my own identity independent of my family, yeah, I loved teaching. I loved the idea that I could be an educator and positively influence young people's lives. I didn't want to do that on anyone's coattails. So I decided that the state education system was the way that I wanted to go so that I could forge my own identity in that space. It's interesting, there's a really strength you've got and this humility about knowing where you're going and um, you work as an educator. Currently, you're a deputy principal of a high school in Brisbane and a wonderful um, reputation as an educator. Just listening to some of the stuff, you, uh, your philosophy about education, it's about one of the things that resonated with me, seeing every individual as an opportunity to maximise them to their potential. Is that what you're on about, Katie? Yeah, absolutely. I love the idea that the diversity of humans that can sit in front of you in a school, um, I think. And, yeah, I am in a deputy principal role now. Some of the most enjoyable interactions I have in this role are sitting alongside 12-year-olds in classrooms and hearing them talk about learning and, you know, some of those early phys ed classes that I taught when I was fresh out of university and the challenge of having a student walk into your classroom who hates physical activity and can't stand the idea of getting into a phys ed uniform, never mind doing anything. And the idea that you can potentially shift their thinking to go, do you know what, let me help you see value in why we would do this. You don't have to love it like I love it, but let's see if we can shift your perspective on how this can add value to your world. And that idea that every person shows up differently and that's the beauty of being in a profession that is you know, inherently so human. Um, sometimes we forget that, yet the opportunity that you have to see so many different people across a day and interact in really different ways, whether it's a parent, whether it's a, 
a head of faculty that are looking after a whole group of people, whether it's a cohort of students, whether it's a year coordinator, whether it's a guidance officer. There's just so much diversity that sits in a school and that idea that each of us play a role in maximising that potential and fundamental to that is actually just understanding them and their needs and what they do and they do not enjoy and how you can help them see a different perspective. So being an educator for... uh a reasonable amount of time just reflecting on the profession itself and what's happening in education and uh, what do you see some of the challenges that uh, educators are facing today and uh, should we continue to be seeing our teachers as something to be criticised or, or a profession we need to be, uh, which I am very proud of? What's your observation? Yeah, there's there's a lot a lot to that question. I think there's this lovely, I can't recall at the moment who says it, but they essentially, I used to use this cracking video at that crazy evening I was speaking about earlier, the idea that everyone is where they are, you know, professionally or in their personal world because they've been influenced by someone critical. And so often that someone critical people point to is a teacher that they had at school, whether it was gave them the belief that they could do the thing that they didn't think that they could do or saw a possibility in them that maybe they hadn't realised until that teacher said it to them. And so many incredible professionals um, will point to a teacher that they had as being really formative in their development. So absolutely a profession to be proud of and celebrate. To the first half of your question about what the challenges are that, that are being faced, I think I mean, the demands are significant, obviously, as they are, to be fair, in so many professions. The world is changing so rapidly and we are required to be so agile. Part of that agility, I think, that is one of the most significant challenges that the education system is facing is how are we genuinely preparing young people for a world that we don't know what it will look like? At the moment, we're preparing them for point in time you know, assessment and testing and tertiary entrance and what they need to do to get the best result possible to theoretically give them possibility about what the next phase of their world looks like. Yet we're also seeing quite a significant shift in the number of students who are doing certificate courses rather than getting an ATAR, for example, Mm. or they get their QCE and they finish high school and they have that qualification, yet they go on and do really different things. Or people that do a degree and then end up not using that degree because they think it's the right thing to do to get a tertiary degree and then they realise that their passion, there's a a kid sitting in a garage with some epic entrepreneurial startup and that becomes his lifetime's work. So I think it's the fundamental challenge is the agility that perhaps doesn't currently sit within our system that would allow our young people to be prepared for the world that is changing just so quickly and maybe we aren't yet doing a good enough job holistically at creating humans that have that capacity to be agile and flexible and you know people bandy about that language of 21st century skills yet they become really critical, the capacity to do you know how to solve problems? Do you know who to talk to? Can you talk to the people? Can you work in a group? Because increasingly in workplaces, they are the skills that are required, less so what does the piece of paper say that you've graduated with? And don't get me wrong, I very much advocate for formal learning and I'm a product of that environment as well. I just think that the world now is different to the world that you know previous generations have entered where you enter a profession 
and you stick with that profession for decades and decades and then you retire. And I've seen that in my parents, you know, the the loyalty that they've had to the institutions that they've worked within um, and the passion that they have for education and the loyalty that they have to the places that they've worked. And then you see statistics about I think it's somewhere between sort of seven to nine job changes is the average for people now in the professional world. And, and that's not head of department to deputy principal. That's like teacher to chef to whatever. So, yeah, I think that is a fundamental and significant challenge that we face as educators moving forward, I would say. So true. Um, last night I was at a function and a lady came up to me and she said, I'm watching you. She said, my, and she said, are you a pilot? I said, no, no. I said, what do you do? She said, well, I started off being a teacher. Now I'm a mining company executive. I said, fantastic, to your point. I think uh, the, the two themes you started off and physical activity and learning, we'll explore the physical activity and the learning part and how it all comes together in the Kirby Short story. You talk about the gene pool, what a magnificent gene pool. Your mum and dad and both of them, your mum played for Australian softball. Yeah. And obviously your dad is well-known rugby union schoolboy circles managing, uh, so I think, LA, LA, LA times, so the Australian schoolboys or thereabouts. And uh, your maternal uh, grandfather, Pop, is Mick Harvey, one of the Harvey brothers and uh, the youngest. Um, and you, uh, in my conversations, have a special relationship with your Pop who's uh, passed over, but uh, somebody who's really given you that encouragement and uh would give you some feedback as well. I'm sure that he would. <laughs> you now find yourself, um, you know, I understand you played volleyball and softball in uh, at school and anything that moved probably you were involved in at all. So um, so sport was part of your world, was it not? Yeah, you talk about a, an education-based gene pool. You've beautifully synthesised the Harvey and the short compilation I think I, I often talk about myself as being a genuine hybrid of my parents and the more that I get to know myself the more I realize just how true that is sometimes it's a bit alarming but yeah I think that we've always had a family that's valued physical activity and there are a few people that were pretty good at it too at their chosen sports so obviously yeah mum's background in softball and um, that's interesting because I think the default then would be the assumption that, you know, again, your mum played softball, so you play softball. And I think the beauty of the household in which I was raised is you always were empowered to make your own choices. I was saying to a friend the other day, even when I want my parents' opinion, they don't give it to me. They just ask another question. And I think that's sort of the household that I've always been brought up in. To your point about Pop, I think he definitely would have had some feedback about a few <laughs> captaincy-related decisions that I've made and now probably some of the things that come out of my mouth in the broadcasting space as well. So I think we've always been able to balance as a family that support and care with honest and quite frank feedback. And I think that that helps you succeed in the world that is sport and leadership and education, I suppose. Underage-wise, yeah, I, I would try anything. Um, I've sort of played across the spectrum in for Queensland at underage and open age groups in anything from volleyball and softball to indoor cricket and Gaelic football. So I've had a pretty wide smattering. I genuinely, if someone says, do you want to have a game of this? I'll usually just say yes. And until I decide I don't want to anymore, but I'll certainly always throw my hat in the ring for everything. So they were the two sports, softball and volleyball, as a high school student that I was most successful in. It was a really interesting phase, I think, I was around softball diamonds a lot, like I was on hockey fields, like I was 
I used to warm up the the first, seconds and thirds Brisbane Grammar Rugby teams as well just before they'd run out onto Northgate, run the line for my brother's team at Jeeps. So there was certainly just ensconced in physical activity. That was a pretty comfortable space for me. So I fell in love with softball as my mum had, not because I was forced to, just because it happened that way. And I played from about 10 and spent hours and hours it's ironic you know driving past Downey Park these days and I think about the disproportionate number of hours of my childhood spent either between there or Redlands uh, softball club as well so it's um it was certainly part of my world and obviously a part of mum's world that she valued so dearly and has some wonderful friends as a consequence and it's a really interesting tipping point in year 12 for me given that learning and academic results were pretty important to me as well, had to make a decision about which representative schoolgirls sport I wanted to play because I sort of pursued the club representative sport pathway with softball and played schoolgirls volleyball and not being particularly large in stature. Everyone always gets a bit confused with the volleyball thing, but it's a sport I dearly love. To be honest, probably my my true sporting love, it's just a wonderful game when you understand the nuances and so I'd sort of played that and made rep teams and it was essentially a, a a given to make the state team and actually that meant an overseas trip we got to go to Asia if you made the Queensland schoolgirls team at that time which was a really cool opportunity a couple of states from Australia went over and played in sort of Singapore and Malaysia which would have just been a remarkable experience and the unfortunate part was that the state championships for volleyball fell in term three and at the time they were the critical exams um, in year 12 preceding QCS and all of the other things. So, And softball state championships was in term one, which with the schedule that I had made more sense in terms of disrupting learning during that term. So in year 12, despite having played school girls volleyball from grade eight through to grade 11, in year 12 I decided to play softball schoolgirls comp and I again I was in the state team for club at the time um, essentially all of my teammates from the Queensland team from a club pathway were at this state championships and we played the tournament um, it was a tough decision for me to choose softball in that year over volleyball but you know you you do what you have to do and as is the case in underage tournaments you're sitting on the number one diamond at the end of the carnival and all the names are getting read out and I'm watching all the girls that I'm playing. I literally, I'd be training with the next day with a different uniform, different Queensland uniform on, and they're all getting up. And I'm thinking, okay, well, they picked 12 and there's 10 up there. And then the next name gets read out and it's not mine. And then the last name gets read out and it's still not mine. And I'm sitting there looking at this team and there's only about two girls in this team that aren't in the team that I'm training with in a couple of days um, in a different Queensland uniform. And it's one of the loneliest places I think I've ever been uh, in a in a sporting sense before. Normally my some member of my family would sort of be at representative carnivals, but this was like the first one ever that no one had come with. We were in Rockhampton. And I remember getting on the plane, I'd stayed with my mum's best friend and getting on the plane on the way home and flying back from Rocky and I'm not a an outwardly emotional human but I was absolutely gutted and I think I cried most of the way home and I remember my mum seeing me at the airport when I landed in Brisbane. I must have looked a bit like a train wreck but that was a really interesting period for me. It was the first real kick in the guts I'd had from sport. I'd been mm. really quite lucky in the sense that I'd, I'd made teams without really thinking about it and 
And then all of a sudden I hadn't made this team and I'd sacrificed all these other things to play this tournament because I thought it was the right thing to do academically in my last year of high school and I'd been so considered in making this choice and it's just that was one of my early learnings about how how brutal sport can be when you're so invested in something and it's funny how the universe then works because a little while later it just happened that someone asked me to go and trial for a a representative cricket team which I'd never played properly before Uh, and that then set me off on a whole different path so and I suppose led to some reasonable success in that space as well so it's it's funny how things work. That felt like the worst thing in the world, yet it opened a door and opened my eyes to possibilities of playing something different. So that that role of sport that you spoke about um, right from the beginning as a, a kid with a, a giant tennis racket or a giant golf club in the backyard as a three- or four-year-old to, to sitting on a diamond in Rockhampton as a 17-year-old being the most devastated I've ever felt at a sporting event um, to then going actually well if this isn't for me then what is and and then I guess as they say the rest is history. Well it is history and uh, it's a nice segue to to talk about um, obviously from sporting uh, significance with your pop and that lineage there to cricket and uh, finding your place from adversity into the Queensland fire. And then, you know, 2017, you became the captain of the Brisbane Heat and uh, met somebody before then, I think somebody by the name of Ash Barty, um, a good friend, and um, just watching some of your games and um, just your athleticism in the field and uh, batting, et cetera. But... So impressed because of your captain capability, and I can see why there's uh, not being outwardly emotional, but having a really uh, essential presence. And I hope you take this as a compliment. You're young, but you have a sense of presence, an age beyond your years. And I think that's a, a great uh, accolade to have, and somebody who can metaphorically read the play. So you've now progressed on to. Uh, commentating the media and uh, obviously ABC Radio on to Fox Cricket and Channel 7, uh, all of that. Wow. And so that lonely diamond in Rockhampton has produced this great diamond elsewhere. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's funny. The road to through the playing phase, I suppose, of my career, it's it's like anyone's story about anything. It's no one is an overnight success, but people think that people are. Um, no matter what road you've walked, it's fascinating. You pop out the other end of something and I think, you know, gosh, if you said to me 10 or 15 years ago that this is where I would be and these are the experiences I would have had, I literally would have laughed in your face. I think that teenage kid sitting on the diamond in Rocky and how lonely and awful that felt and then to throw your hat at something that you're starting as an 18-year-old that people around you have been doing since they were 10. It's almost like I tapped into cricket about eight or nine years after my peers had started playing that game. So that was a whole thing in itself. And I think people made the assumption that, oh, you know, cricket's in your family, it's in your household. And yeah, for sure. But mum and I packed up and went to Downey Park and 
Callum and Dad went off elsewhere. So I sort of didn't have that exposure other than being a bit of a bowling machine in the backyard and having a bit of a whack and <laughs> trying to hit it straight, not square. But, you know, I think that was a bumpy road as well because to make that choice at 18 or 19 to start playing representative sport of any nature, no matter how transferable some of the skills are, as you well know, there's a level of game awareness that allows people to be successful. And it's funny that you talk about Ash in there because we were fortunate enough to cross paths and we she played at um, my club, Western Suburbs, which was wonderful. And we sort of forged a, a really nice friendship as a consequence of that interaction and also her brief stint with the Heat. But it's funny, people ask me and I would say it to her face too, you know, that it's the game awareness that you can lack even if you have a really natural physical ability. And I remember talking to her about running between wickets and those sorts of things, really subtle things that when you've been doing it forever, you don't think about. Yet Mm -hmm. when you enter the game really late, there's so much that you have to learn so quickly. So it was sort of I was alongside these teammates who were five years younger than me but had played cricket for triple the length of time that I had. So it was a really interesting thing to navigate. So as a consequence of that, the playing phase of my career was, I, if I look at my 16 years of representative cricket, I reckon about 70% of that time I wasn't sure if I was going to make the team. You know, you were in a squad, but were you travelling on the weekend? Were you not travelling on the weekend? Were you going to be running, travelling but running drinks? Or were you actually in the 11? If you were in the 11, what was your role in the 11? I started as an off spinner. I finished as an opening batter. You know, I was trying to work out what kind of cricketer I actually was while I was doing it, while I had a Queensland shirt on my back thinking, far out, what am I doing here? And a huge part of that was me convincing myself that I deserve to be there. And that took a long time as well because you were surrounded by all of these incredible athletes who were actually cricketers and you felt a little bit fraudulent for a decent period of time as well. And, you know, you walk that road and you're not sure if you'll make it and then you do make it and then all of a sudden, and it's not all of a sudden, it's 10 years later, but all of a sudden you find yourself sitting down with a coach and the assistant coach and a couple of senior players in the middle of a WBBL tournament and they say to you, actually, the captain, she's not wanting to do this anymore and we think you're the right person for the job and you're still rationalising, well, hang on a second, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be in this team a couple of seasons ago and now you're asking me to be the leader of this team and then I'm looking alongside myself at the launch of the WBBL season and I'm going... New Zealand captain, England captain, Indian captain, Australian captain, Australian player, Australian player, Kirby Short. And you think, (laughs) goodness gracious me, how on earth am I? I remember having this thought at the sort of of out-of-body experience at Junction Oval at the launch of, because I picked up the captaincy midway through one season and then I remember being at the launch the following season and I'm surrounded by just these these women that I admire um, and they are the leaders of all of the other franchises and I'm like, wow, well, who's the odd one out here? I am not an Australian player. I I know a little bit about people and I know a little bit about leadership and I know a little bit about cricket, um, but you look around and you go, goodness me, imposter syndrome is real. How do you actually overcome that? So, yeah, as you say, sort of walk a really interesting path again a a really quite a unique way to come to play the sport and then do what we did and um also had the privilege of yeah winning a couple of titles with the heat as well in the last couple of years of my playing career which was 
truly wonderful. Um, didn't quite get the WNCL title for Queensland. That happened the year after I finished, but pleased that Queensland owned one of those two. Ruth Pretty took a while to make her way back to Queensland, but that trophy finally made it, which is wonderful. And I think, yeah, then the broadcasting thing is a whole nother kettle of fish in the sense that that is not front and center is not my style. You know, that is not the way that I have ever operated in my life yet. You know, there's a big light and a big camera and your hair and your makeup and your wardrobe's done. And all of a sudden you are the center of attention. And that has been a really interesting challenge for me post playing um, and finding a way to make a contribution in a way that's different to what I thought it would be yet that idea of offering, again, a perspective to people who are sitting at home that it's not about me being on camera, it's not about any of the glitz and the glamour of that, it's actually about, well, how can you ask questions and make comments that help people understand the game that you naturally do that they may not? And also, given what I've just described that was the the story of my cricket, you know, I'm, I'm sitting alongside these remarkable players who've played potentially hundreds of games for Australia and, you know, been the best at what they do. And that was never me. And I'm okay with that. I own that. But that also gives me a really unique opportunity to offer a different perspective to the audience as well, uh, which I really surprisingly have thoroughly enjoyed about the broadcasting space. So I'm looking forward to another summer of cricket ahead. Fantastic. I won't ask you, well, I will ask you a question. Who's, uh, who's that one best player that you've ever, ever played with or seen or just whenever it comes to mind, pops into your head, that person's got the X factor and you think, wow. Yeah, it's a really tricky question because I think there's people I admire and then there's people who are just out-and-out freaks at what they do and, you know, you look at someone like Nat Siva at the moment who is the English skipper. She's taken a little bit of time away but... She's probably the premier all-rounder in the game at the moment and her capacity to do what she's done. Then you could look at someone like Belinda Clark who in a different era just paved the way for some of the remarkable things that now happen and she, I truly admire her as both a leader and a performer. Someone like Meg Lanning who's had the longevity that she's had in the game and the way that she was able to evolve her game. Same as Elise Perry, she's just a remarkable athlete. So you know, they, they each have brought their own really quite interesting story and I think increasingly we're going to see, you know, Nat Siva has created a brand, Elise Perry started that Nat Siva's consolidated and then goodness knows what the next generation's version mm-hmm. of that all-rounder is and to have played alongside some of those women. Someone like Belinda Clark, I would love to have shared a change room with her because she she really is a remarkable human being and is it is now giving back to the game in so many ways. She sort of worked administratively and now she's mentoring younger athletes and Talia McGrath may be, you know, another one of those names that we see and say in the future and um, Belinda's actually mentoring her. So it's quite exciting the possibilities of how the game will evolve and the athletes within it will evolve. Fantastic. And uh, my final question I asked to... Um, all our uh, Edge podcast participants, I'm interested in leadership and and you are a phenomenal leader, Kirby. So in your observations working with the best leaders and thinking about leadership, your own approach to leadership, 
what are the three or five things you think a leader's got to have these things? We've all worked for best leaders and uh, regrettably, I guess, <laughs> we work from other leaders, let's say. Great question. I think the first thing is that they know themselves very well. I think the other thing that I would say is that they listen before they tell. And the third thing that I would say is while they have a really clear vision or direction for where they want to go, they're willing to have their mind changed. I think they would probably be the three things, knowing self, listening first, and clarity of direction with an agility for what that outcome can ultimately be. Wow, that's very insightful. And uh, Kirby Short, you're a phenomenal uh, person and uh, I've had the privilege of getting to know you a little bit and uh, my hope is we'll continue to grow that professional relationship and friendship. The contribution you've made to young people's lives and your stewardship of others and your leadership, which is natural, your presence is obvious. You're an incredible talent and uh, the future is yours. Thank you for your participation on EDGE today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.